everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focus and security policy, and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country, and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. On this show, I've virtually always approached every episode with at least an overarching theme in mind, if not a very specific topic. That's allowed me at times to dive deeper into certain issues than I ever would have thought possible when I started doing this show, which has been interesting, at least for me. Obviously, I hope for you too. On the other hand, this does come with challenges. At least some of the time I've struggled to put out episodes more consistently has been because I've been like, uh, I can't decide what one thing to talk about in a way that ties together. And also, listeners of recent episodes of the show have heard me lament at times the fact that, oh my god, there's so much going on and I have to narrow it down and pick just one thing. So on this episode, let's call it sort of a test run and see if this might work as a model for some future ones, I'm going to try to kind of split the baby and weigh in on a couple of big things going on over the last week or so, both in the US and other parts of the world, rather than just doing a deeper dive on just one. Before we get started, though, as always, if you haven't already, please do go ahead and subscribe or follow the show. And most importantly, if you like the show, please be sure to share it with anybody you think might get something out of it. I mentioned lunatic banana Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene in a recent episode of this show. Well, she's in the news again because this last week she marched straight into a congressional hearing and whipped out a dick pic of the president's son. Now, on the one hand, this could be kind of funny if we imagined this music hang on, there we go, playing in the background in a we're halfway to idiocracy, my god, Jerry Springer is now officially more vanilla than the US Congress kind of way. But it's worth thinking about the context here and what this, like, means. So first of all, why is there a hearing being held, another hearing again about Hunter Biden at this point? We already know that he has struggled with addiction, something sadly that is true of millions of other Americans, including, in fact, many Republicans. Unlike, as was the case with various of Trump's relatives, Joe Biden did not give Hunter Biden some sweetheart gig in the West Wing when Joe became the president, nor is there any evidence that Joe has in some way used the levers of power as president to get his family rich. Now compare this to Donald Trump, who shoveled millions upon millions of dollars into his family's company by constantly going to, and thus bringing a huge Secret Service contingent to his resorts and then billing the government, redirecting military flights to land near and thus have to stay at his properties, and making it clear that foreign diplomats who want his ear and influence really should be staying at his hotel and eating at his restaurants. Furthermore, despite endless claims to the contrary, no evidence has been found that Hunter or Joe Biden engaged in some sort of corruption or bribery or something vis-a-vis -vis Hunter's own work. He traded on his father's name. I totally agree with the idea that it's yicky when kids with rich or famous parents get a massive leg up over the rest of us. Everyone in principle should advance on their own merit rather than leveraging connections or a big family name. And while we're on the subject, we should massively raise the estate tax and end legacy admissions at college. But with all that being said, although it is kind of gross, this has been investigated pretty extensively and there just isn't evidence that Hunter committed a crime in this area at least. Yes, Hunter did plead guilty to two minor tax-related crimes and got a pretty good deal on how he'll end up paying for them. 
But it should be noted that this was an investigation that started under a Trump-appointed prosecutor who Joe Biden then specifically left on the job and encouraged to see the investigation all the way through, rather than in replacing him with somebody more friendly, which is the standard practice in this context and Biden could easily have gotten away with. So then why, why, why is the taxpayers' time and money still being wasted on hearings in Congress being held to investigate the various sordid antics of Hunter Biden? Well, for this, so that it gives an excuse for clowns like Marjorie Taylor Greene to walk into a congressional hearing room and wave around a dick pic to embarrass the guy. And because Republicans hope that if a few of them in official-looking settings like a congressional hearing or over on their dedicated propaganda channels repeat the words, Biden crime family, enough times over and over again, it somehow neutralizes the fact that Donald Trump, Biden's likely opponent in the 2024 elections, is a guy who was the single most corrupt president, well, actually really the most corrupt elected official in any office in the modern era, a guy who is likely to spend much of the next year on trial for a variety of very serious crimes. The saddest thing is that numerous Republican elected officials have just come straight out and basically said, yeah, we're doing this for political purposes and to be vindictive. What are you going to do about it? Finally, before I move on from this, I don't want to sound hysterical, but this was a sexual assault. I mean, in effect, Marjorie Taylor Greene and everyone involved in making this happen sexually assaulted the president's son. I mean, Hunter Biden is a private citizen whose laptop got hacked and this picture stolen. Now, lots of people have pictures we might call uh, compromising on their laptops or their phones. Taking those pictures without their consent and then publicizing them also without their consent. I mean, I'm sorry, unless Hunter Biden was posing naked right next to an attache case with a giant sign on it saying, bribe money with love from China, Iran, Hydra, and the Legion of Doom, nobody should be seeing this picture. Moving on to another domestic U.S. political issue. I insulted Alabama a whole bunch in the last episode of this podcast. Wait, no, I think it was two episodes ago. In any case, they sure are doing whatever they can to make sure that I don't in any way feel bad in retrospect about having been mean. So if you've listened to almost any episode of this podcast that I've ever done that in any way addresses U.S. politics, you've probably heard me attack the current U.S. Supreme Court to varying degrees of colorfulness always implying that they are not so much a court of independent jurists as much as they are a legislative body dominated by a set of Republican theocrats pushing a right-wing agenda. But it turns out that the legislative map proposed by Republicans in Alabama was so racist and so in violation of what remains of the Voting Rights Act after an earlier right-wing Supreme Court gutted it about a decade ago that even this Supreme Court couldn't ignore it and ordered Alabama to rewrite the maps. And the Alabama Republicans are basically just saying no. I mean, maybe they're hoping that they can just drag it out long enough so that they can squeeze in one more election cycle with these racist maps that massively favor them. I mean, that on its own would be kind of a problem. I mean, court proceedings and court orders aren't really meant to be implemented on whatever timetable is politically convenient to those they apply to. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're Donald Trump's body man and your arraignment can be delayed three times because you apparently couldn't find any lawyers in Florida. But let's say that the new Alabama Republican position is that federal laws only apply when they like those laws. For one thing, we already did kind of fight a war over that and they lost. Do we need to come down there and remind them of that? I mean, I would assume that they do remember that. Southern conservatives do, after all, really seem to like staging weird, sad little reenactments of the war they lost a century and a half ago, so... 
To be fair, though, this problem might be wider than just the Banana Republicans in Alabama. Republican Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy has apparently reached out to Alabama Republicans to offer his encouragement that they do this. Presumably because he remembers how hard it was to become Speaker of the House with his teeny, teensy, tiny Republican majority after that red wave they expected didn't materialize last November. And he doesn't want to have to go through all that again. For more, see episode, I think, 32 of this podcast. But think about that. That is the highest-ranking elected Republican in the United States, third in line to the presidency, implying that his party shouldn't have to follow orders from the Supreme Court. Are they sure they want to go down that road? And if so, I sure hope they don't mind blue states passing laws that like, uh, ban the sale or transfer of firearms without a background check training and a licensing process, or the federal government under Democratic administrations sending federal troops into red states to open and protect abortion clinics in defiance of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, or the EPA just going right ahead and regulating carbon dioxide emissions from power plants, which, is, which the court just said they couldn't do. Because if we're deciding to just abandon the notion that the judicial branch has authority and go with raw political power instead, well, I'm pretty sure more Americans support abortion rights, background checks, and curbing carbon emissions than support the ability of Southern Republicans to undercut the political rights of black people. Speaking of torching the independent judiciary, Israel. Well, this seems like a good day, or a bad day, I guess to go check in on a story we covered on the show a couple of months back. For more context, go listen to episode 37. Now, you may remember that the current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been attempting to substantially weaken the judiciary in Israel. Um, he's been doing this for a couple of reasons. For one thing, he himself is under indictment for some pretty serious corruption charges, and he'd like for those to go away. Also, he's an authoritarian creep who's backed by an ever more extreme right and theocratic block of supporters who would like to make serious changes to a country that, yes, although deeply flawed, is a liberal and relatively secular democracy, the only one in its neighborhood, and certainly the only country anywhere in the Middle East that has anything like the kinds of protections and equality for women and LGBT people that we Western liberals would like to see everywhere. The kinds of right-wing theocrats who would like to take Israel and, well, really when you think about it, actually just make it look a lot more like its neighbors. That is to say, basically an Orthodox Jewish version of the sort of conservative, authoritarian, at least culturally theocratic countries that surround it. For the kinds of people who want to do that to Israel, I should say, by the way, at an extreme cost to women, secular people, non-straight people, Arab Israelis and Palestinians, for the kinds of people who want to turn Israel into something very different from what it is, well, a functioning judiciary is kind of an impediment. This week, those people achieved the first step in their agenda by forcing through a bill that substantially reduces the Supreme Court's authority in that country. I'll spare you the legal specifics, but it's not great. It was actually just announced that Israel's Supreme Court is actually going to now go and review that law itself. And well, who knows, maybe they'll prevail in that like showdown with the administration. But I'm afraid that they won't be successful and that this is going to be the first step of many that will set Israel down a pretty dark path. There's a lot more to be said about why I think that. The short version is that I'm afraid that we're starting to see the serious long-term consequences of an early Israeli policy to give special privileges to the ultra-Orthodox. That's a policy that at one time may have made some measure of sense in the context of the aftermath of the Holocaust, but now, at least in my view, absolutely does not anymore, and is creating serious problems, both specifically for those who would like to see Israel remain a secular, relatively liberal country, 
And then just more generally, in the context of Israel, like being able to have most of the population like actually contributing to the basic functioning of the country, there's a lot more to be said there, but I'm going to have to save the long version for another day because I've already been going for a while and there are at least two other big things in the world that are worth having a look at this week. So with that being said, let's move north and have a look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I was one of the people who a year and a half ago was pretty sure that when Russia invaded, Ukraine would fight bravely, but ultimately most of it would fall in a week or two. Obviously that didn't happen, which is great. Ukraine's leader and people showed and continue to show heroic resilience in the face of odds that most humans on Earth have never and fortunately will never have to confront. At least, I hope so anyway. With Russia having failed in its objective to subjugate, erase the identity of, and ultimately absorb yet another unwilling population into the 11 unfortunate time zones ground under the boot heel of an incompetent mafia government in Moscow, hey, look at that, I just boiled down a couple centuries of Russian political history to one sentence. With that having failed, Russia's fallen back on its usual ace in the hole, patience. See, patience, I would argue, is central to Russia's approach to military strategy. For one thing, Russian leaders really, I think, fundamentally do not care about the suffering of their subjects and never have, with the possible exception of Mikhail Gorbachev. I really do not believe that Vladimir Putin has shed a single tear over the hundreds of thousands of his own people that he's condemned to death over the last year and a half over a stupid, pointless vanity project, any more than Stalin did when he threw hundreds of thousands of Soviet soldiers into the meat grinder to defend a strategically unimportant city in 1942 because it had his name on it. For another, Russia is huge. As I mentioned, 11 time zones. It has what military planners call strategic depth. That is to say, if attacked, Russian forces can basically just continue to fall back until the invaders get tired. Or cold. We saw this with Napoleon, and we saw it with the Nazis. Fundamentally, not giving a shit about your subjects helps here as well, because in addition to making it easy to continue to expend soldiers over a long, drawn-out period, not caring at all is also a big advantage when strategy suggests that you might benefit from abandoning your civilians, burning everything, and retreating to other parts of your rather vast territory. It's worth noting that it's probably at least kind of arguable as to whether or not Russia should even have a decent bit of that territory. I mean, Great Britain, France, Japan, Spain, Portugal, various other former empires that conquered lands abroad eventually did give up most of those over time, whereas Russia has basically just sat there hoping nobody noticed that it just colonized all of its land neighbors instead of doing that by getting on a boat, and has thus far not only gotten away with it, but continued to try to do so. To be fair, Russia isn't the only country about which that could be said, including my own to some degree, but okay, no reason not to at least mention it in this context. This brings me to another reason why Russia's approach here once they failed to achieve their objectives in that initial invasion, at least, has reverted to the sort of plotting, bomb everything and take one step forward patience that tends to characterize their military strategy. This war isn't about real necessity, it's about expansion. They don't need Ukraine. Russia is by far physically the largest country on Earth with plenty of natural resources. I mean, Putin personally needs to win eventually because if he doesn't, you know, he'll look weak and like an idiot and maybe eventually accidentally fall backward out a window, as one does in Russia. So besides obviously not, like, needing additional territory, I mean, not that that's a genuine excuse for genocide, but okay, a free Ukraine also does not represent any kind of physical threat to Russia, as we saw Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin admit publicly in the midst of his failed putsch a few weeks back. 
nor is there actually a large population of oppressed Russians living in Ukraine begging for salvation from the tyranny of Ukraine's democratically elected government. Russian forces, that is to say, unlike the people they're fighting against, are not fighting either to save their country and their people from an existential threat, nor to, like, save some vulnerable group abroad, all of which contributes to the Russians falling back on their old approach. Massive destruction and patience. Okay, so maybe you're wondering why I just did that massive preamble. To be fair, I don't usually need a reason to take a swing at Russia these days, but there is a reason that I brought up the Russian war on Ukraine this week and explained the context of Russia's whole thing around strategic patience. So, since they failed to take Ukraine in a blitzkrieg and Ukraine has continued to fight back with the support of a variety of allies in the international community, particularly the US, Russia is basically hoping that they can bore and annoy the rest of the world into just giving up and letting them take Ukraine and destroy its people. They believe that they can outlast us, especially if Donald Trump somehow worms his way back into the Oval Office, probably with their help. But they certainly would like for those supporting to, uh, Ukraine to give up at least a little bit more quickly. One approach to doing that has been their usual staple of information warfare, leveraging direct assets and useful idiots on the far left and the far right to spread a whataboutist narrative they think will eventually succeed in muddying the waters enough that we back off. Hell, I got an LTE published in the Washington Post the other day. Sorry to shamelessly self-promote, but I bring this up because in the process of doing that, I went and read some of the comments on my piece, and damned if there wasn't at least one guy who had just joined the comment thread to say that Russia is a democracy and the world has no business backing Ukraine. Besides information warfare, another thing the Russians can do and are doing is attempt to mess things up in other parts of the world. Because, you know, the kinds of countries who will step up to oppose genocide also tend to be the kinds of countries that will step up to try to prevent a famine. And here's where I finally get to my actual point. Promised I'd get there eventually. Ukraine is one of the world's largest exporters of agricultural products, especially things like grain. We're talking like somewhere between 10 and 20% of the world's grain comes from Ukraine, and a lot of it goes to the World Food Program or to places like Sub-Saharan Africa, which are in dire need of it at the moment because there's been several years of drought, which has made that already food insecure region even more vulnerable. Relatively early in the war, Turkey brokered a deal whereby Russia wouldn't destroy ships from Ukraine exporting grain. But this past week, the Russians pulled out of that deal. Now, I don't know enough about this space, or have enough exact numbers to know what the actual impacts of this will be, but it's not going to be good. Now, I rather doubt that any in my audience have a lot of moral ambiguity about who are the bad guys in this conflict, but just in case anyone here does, or anyone here encounters somebody else who does and would like an argument, it's worth remembering that Russia isn't just deliberately bombing civilian targets, including children's hospitals, engaging in the systemic rape, looting, and murder of civilians, concentration camps, and organizing mass kidnapping of children in Ukraine. They're also deliberately attempting to start a global famine, either so they can try to pin it on the Ukrainians in order to turn the developing world against them, or to distract Ukraine's allies by giving them another crisis they have to fix. It remains to be seen how this is going to get handled. I believe the Ukrainians are planning or have threatened to respond to this by treating more Russian ships as hostile or, or ships heading for Russian ports as hostile and sinking them. I also wonder if at some point either certain NATO countries or certain of the third party countries maybe should consider starting to escort Ukrainian transport ships carrying food at some point, thus basically daring the Russians to attack them. I'm open to being convinced otherwise, but I'm inclined to think this might be a good idea. Putin is a bully. 
Russian foreign policy for a long time has basically consisted of rattling sabers in order to scare others into backing off because they don't want a war with Russia, which has often worked out in Russia's favor. But on the other hand, Putin's also a coward playing a weak hand. Russia almost always turns out to be a paper tiger when other countries hear the aforementioned saber rattling and then, rather than backing down, simply roll their eyes and keep doing what they're doing. Remember how this time a year ago we were all about to get nuked unless we back down and stop supporting Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, me too. Finally, moving on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine to wrap this episode up with something a bit more positive, Spain this last Sunday held the elections that Julia and I were discussing on the last episode of this podcast. It really was looking like Spain's center-left president, Pedro Sánchez, was about to be out of a job to be replaced by a right-wing coalition that would include a substantial contingent of a far-right party for the first time since the end of the Franco dictatorship in the 70s. And media all over the rest of the West was preemptively tut-tutting at Spanish voters, irresponsibly allowing these bad people into power. But at the end of the day, although the center-right party won the most votes, they didn't win enough to form a coalition, even with the support of that far-right party, which itself actually lost a decent number of seats this time around. Although it is still technically possible, it really does look pretty unlikely that the right wing will be able to take power, meaning that Sanchez will either manage to cobble together a coalition, which unfortunately would depend on making concessions to a particularly odious group that forms one part of the Catalan separatist movement, or there will be another set of elections. Now, this is a gamble and of course a bit nerve-wracking, but on the other hand, polls like a week and a half ago showed Sanchez and the center-left getting absolutely wrecked, and that didn't end up materializing, which says to me at least, or it seemed to imply, that the trend line is actually going in the right direction and another set of elections might turn out better. We'll just have to see. But, you know, there's at least one good thing that happened this week. And with that, I think I'll leave it there. So that's it for this sort of multi-topic episode of OK Talks. I think doing that kind of worked. But shit, I wonder what the title should be. <laughs> I guess that's something else I'll have to think about if I start doing this more often. In any case, if you like the show and want to make sure you don't miss the next episode, subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. As always, please, please do go ahead and share the podcast with anybody you think might get something out of it. I know it's tiring always hearing podcasters asking you to do that, but it really is critical to getting a show off the ground. So, as always, thanks to everyone who has done that. Thanks in advance to everyone else who will. Thanks to Nate for having designed the podcast artwork. And thanks to everyone else for listening. Thanks.